This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, Andy here filling in for Mike on the intro today. And in case this is your first time here, you are listening to the Conquering Columbus podcast. On today's show, Josh sat down with Dr. Xenia Call, CEO and CSO at Reheva Biosciences, a local biopharmaceutical startup founded in 2016. Early on in the show, Dr. Call talks about her experience moving from India to the United States and how that helped prepare her for her role today with Reheva. I remember when I left India, obviously I was very young, so my mother actually left me with my family in India for some time while I was growing with my cousins, brothers and sisters there. And while they were focusing on their careers at the time, but moving so many times it's not easy as a young girl, young toddler or a young teenager, having to move different countries, learn different languages, different accents is very difficult. And I probably never appreciated that at the time, but all these experiences probably were preparing me for a day like today where I can reflect back. My friends are all over the world. A lot of them joined me from across the globe for our wedding in India, which I was very fortunate to have. We had a blast. So just a global community of friends, mentors that I've really had along my career so far. Later, Dr. Call talks about the challenges with being an entrepreneur and how she goes about handling the stress that comes along with the job. You know, you basically wipe your tears. I've cried many times during this journey where I've told my husband, I don't want to do this. But then you sleep over it, you wake up next morning, you know you can solve it, and you just do it over again. And, and there are days where I shut my computer, order my favorite food, and just watch Netflix and wake up next morning with a fresh energy. Josh and Dr. Call wrap up talking about the clinical trial process and the challenge that comes with putting the success of your products in other people's hands. When we got into clinical trials and really handing everything to our clinical site, that's when I really said things are literally out of my control now. Because our supervisors, our principal investigators, our clinicians are going to be my ambassadors to these patients. Clinical trials are, I'm not saying the second option, but most patients have the standard of care option that they can take. If they choose not to, then clinical trials are an option to them. Secondly, sometimes patients have unfortunately tried everything that was available to them. There is no other drug that their clinician could offer to them, but then there are investigational drugs that are being tried. So patients can choose to be part of a clinical trial after they've tried a lot of different things. That's it for me today. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Call. And if you do, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any other interviews. All right, on to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Xenia Call, CEO and CSO of Reheva Biosciences. Reheva Biosciences is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical startup founded in 2016, discovering and developing naturally occurring complex botanical agents to treat and manage cancer. Their goal is to help people live longer and healthier with cancer, ultimately transforming cancer treatment into disease management. They recently started their phase one clinical trial of their drug, RH324. We're excited to have Xenia on to talk about her journey and why she found Reheva and what the future may hold and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Xenia. Hello, everyone. So where we normally start is background on our guests and and that could be milestones along the way. I'm always personally curious to learn more about where you grew up and what got you into Columbus and how your professional journey and everything unfolded. So do you want to take us back to the early days? Of course. Well, I was born in India. I was raised in Japan and I did my grad school in Sydney, Australia. So when I was coming to Columbus, uh, I apologize in advance to your listeners. I did not know where Columbus, Ohio was. My husband was moving back from Bay Area to be with his family in Ohio. And I just booked my plane ticket from Sydney and took that long plane trip to Columbus, Ohio. At the time, the international airport was called Port Columbus International Airport. And I thought it is a port. There must be some water here. But Columbus is home now. I have a family. 
I have lots of friends. We founded Reheva in Columbus, and I'm very actually fortunate to be part of this Columbus community, which is extremely growing and fascinating right now. So that's a journey in and of itself and probably a podcast episode. So from India to Japan, then to Sydney, so you're no stranger to travel. To the extent you're comfortable sharing a little bit about that journey, why so much diversity growing up? Yeah, I was actually very fortunate, or in fact, I'm very fortunate to be a daughter of two cancer researchers who've actually dedicated almost four decades of their life discovering cancer therapeutics, developing them in academic institutions at pharmaceutical companies. And they got to travel the world because of their work, going for sabbatical and I accompanied them alongside. I remember my mother taking me as a young girl to different aging and cancer conferences. And I always wondered why she would be dragging me to these aging conferences. And I think it's those diverse experiences that has really allowed me to found a company, lead it the way I do and the way I live my life right now. So just having experience traveling the world, whether it was their convention centers at the time, but I think just my parents, work really took them around the world and I followed along. Yeah, I'm always really envious of people who have situations where they could grow up and get that set of diversity. I'm very culturally ignorant to most things. And like, as I've started to travel and be fortunate to travel more as I've grown up, it's helped with just my understanding of the world as a whole and emotional intelligence and to see different cultures and the way people act. And so I'm, I'm assuming that shaped you a lot growing up and molded you as you continue to evolve in your professional career. Absolutely. I remember when I left India, obviously I was very young. So my mother actually left me with my family in India for some time while I was growing with my cousin brothers and sisters there. And while they were focusing on their careers at the time, but moving so many times is not easy as a young girl, young toddler or a young teenager, having to move different countries, learn different languages, different accents is very difficult. And I probably never appreciated that at the time, but all these experiences probably were preparing me for a day like today where I can reflect back. My friends are all over the world. A lot of them joined me from across the globe for our wedding in India, which I was very fortunate to have. We had a blast. So just a global community of friends, mentors that I've really had along my career so far. And so when you get to Sydney, did you say that you did all of your studies there or just a portion of them? Partly. I did my middle school in Sydney and uh, my graduate studies. At the time when I was doing my middle school, I never knew I would be going back to Sydney, which is such a beautiful place to do my grad school, which I never got to explore as much as a grad student because you're working the lab 2 a.m., go home, come back next morning to lab. But I sometimes say my heart is still in Sydney. So what did you study in undergrad? I studied natural sciences, which was actually, again, a very interesting journey because I didn't really focus on biology, physics or chemistry. I got to really study all natural sciences and it was a liberal arts college. So I did economics, communications, media, natural sciences, art, and that diverse education also was really actually instrumental in how I see things, not just in a single isolation, but really explore it from different facets. It's interesting to hear that. You do hear about so many people that talk about liberal arts undergraduate education and pretty much dragging them through those different courses and your ability to see that as a way that opened your mind and expanded your horizons is great. So as you expanded that into your grad school, what did you go then on into study into grad school? Yeah. So during my undergrad, I did a PhD in molecular and cell biology. I was actually very fortunate to be part of a world leading research laboratory. Really, really highly regarded researchers were doing research research. And what we studied in that laboratory was how does a normal cell during the normal cause of aging 
convert into a cancer cell. So what really triggers in a normal cell that converts it into a cancerous cell? So I was involved in really understanding that pathways, those mechanisms. And now that we know, and it's very well documented that cancer is such a multifaceted disease that multiple pathways are involved, multiple genes are involved. And I truly believe that's why that no single drug is really going to be that treatment for cancer. It will really need that multidisciplinary multiple cancer drug approach if we were going to manage the disease. Right now, majority of cancer treatment is more in treatment phase. You know, you get diagnosed, you get treatment, you go into remission. And then unfortunately, if some patients relapse, they go into treatment again. But I truly hope in next 10, 15 years that we really make cancer a disease that we can manage over time. I really hope that it's not a death sentence like it is today for a lot of cancers. For example, heart disease almost 20 years ago was very deadly, but now a lot of people live with heart diseases. We manage the disease very efficiently. And I really hope that with all the advancements that are going around in the world, in the field of cancer, a multidisciplinary approach will ultimately make cancer a disease that we manage. This might be a dumb question, even a hard question to answer. How far back does cancer date? Do we know like when the first signs of it started to arise? There have been some documented evidence, but maybe at the time we did not know it was cancer. It was something that was maybe like a tumor mass or something that probably there were some pathological markers that we were able to look at, but not really understanding if it's really a disease. But we've come a long way in a lot of cancers. Some are still very deadly. Long-term survival is still very short. Five-year survival is short for a lot of cancers. But for example, breast cancer, even some of the lung cancers have made a lot of progress. And I think that's really attributed to us really understanding the disease, that it is truly multifaceted. No single thing is going to really do the treatment long term. Does the overall society studying it, do we feel like it's increasing per capita or are we just hearing about it more often because our population is getting larger and surrounded by more people? That's a question that we really talk about as well. Maybe, yes, with better diagnostics, we detected obviously more than we probably did before. And there could be higher incidences of certain cancers going up over time. So you knew growing up that you wanted to go into the same field as your parents. You never thought about Uh, straying away and it didn't burn you out. It probably did not really. And sometimes I feel fortunate or unfortunate that I never got to explore other fields or other career paths. But I remember being dragged to lab when I was young. After school, my mother would pick me up and I would go to lab with them, do some lab chores, you know, cleaning glassware, cataloging their reagents. And that's what I spent my evenings or summers doing. But what that really showed me was their dedication. All the lab researchers or people that they interacted with, they were absolutely passionate about what they do. And I think that was more important to me to learn that hard work, that humility that they had towards doing big things and the passion that they had day in, day out. I know how many winter breaks and summer breaks that my mother did not go to India to see her family because that experiment was going on and it could not wait which it could have waited, but she decided that was above more than her family seeing her, that her work, her passion really took that front seat. Mike and I talk about this a lot from our experience in athletics and just being surrounded by really incredible and exceptional achieving individuals and winning Olympics and things like that. And just to see the drive, but also just to see the mindset and start to understand when you surround yourself by that, that it's possible. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the old adage of 
who you surround yourself with. Thankfully, these were your parents. And to watch them trying to change the world, I could see where the motivation would come from. Yeah, I often say that it could have led in two directions. One, I could completely not like it because that's all they talked about or on dinner tables all the time. I remember there used to be a short walk from my parents' apartment at the time to their laboratory. And in the evenings after dinner, we would take a short walk and my dad would be explaining to me about his experiments. Or I could just love it the way it did. And I think I chose the latter. And I often say sometimes researchers and entrepreneurs particularly are a little delusional, which is a very terrible way to live because you think everything is possible. You think that you can make the difference. And I think that has been a huge motivation, even as a researcher, that I'm going to try to find out how this works. As a researcher, my nine out of 10 experiments actually failed. It was that one successful one that really kept you going, that, okay, I'm going to do nine more or 10 more to figure this out. And similarly in entrepreneurship, we face so much roadblocks. We have to put out fires every day trying to solve different things. And there would be hundred reasons that somebody can tell me why shouldn't you'd be not developing botanical drugs, but I needed that one reason why I should be developing it. And I think that really propelled us. And I think hopefully that would be the future of the company. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And as we continue to progress down your journey and then jump into Rahiva, I want to just talk a little bit about that piece a little bit more. And I know what you're saying, and I've felt it before. How do you root yourself with such large aspirations and feeling like you can be the one that changes the world? You know, failure is there often, right? And it's a long journey. It doesn't happen fast. And so how do you root yourself and find satisfaction in the day-to-day and not get too caught up in the fact that it's not happening right away? Yeah, absolutely. I think The most important thing I say these days is failure is a new success. So if you've not seen failure, you're not going to succeed. And again, goes back to my research training where there was no rule book, especially when you do grad school. It's a question that nobody's answered before. So you try to find an answer to that. And I remember my grad school supervisor telling me our cohort or our incoming class that if in your first year, If you don't think that you want to quit, you're not in the right place. So that constant failure, that fear of failure is basically taken out of you, that I'm just going to keep figuring it out. And yes, I mean, every day or, you know, very often I get emails or work things that I feel like, oh my God, you know, that really knocked me out. Or I just want to go under my bed and not come out and hope that somebody would solve and next morning I wake up and it's all done. But, you know, you basically wipe your tears. I've cried many times during this journey where I've told my husband, I don't want to do this. But then you sleep over it. You wake up next morning, you know, you can solve it and you just do it over again. And and there are days where I shut my computer, order my favorite food and just watch Netflix and wake up next morning with a fresh energy. So you get done with your PhD and then how does your journey unfold? You eventually find your way to Columbus, realize there's no water. Everybody's (laughs) disappointed when they get here and realize there's no water. Yeah, actually. So this was in 2012. I defended my PhD thesis and I came to Columbus. I had to find a laboratory where I could continue doing my research. So there were actually two laboratories. I started doing a postdoc fellowship at Nationwide Children's here in Columbus. And within almost nine months, I actually got an IH fellowship to continue doing fellowship work at Ohio State. So I actually moved from Nationwide Children's to Ohio 
Ohio State to do my NIH fellowship. And along the same time, I got the Pelotonia Fellowship as well. So I was very grateful for all the support that I was getting for the research that I needed to do as part of my fellowship. And as I said, I had moved countries so many times and I was here now in Columbus. No friends, no family, a husband that I had not really interacted a whole lot with previously. And my husband was doing MBA at Fisher College here. So what was Zena going to do? Was going to go get an MBA. So I actually joined my husband to get MBA in the evenings. Around 2016, I finished my fellowship as well as my MBA. And I had actually a big consulting job to go to New York to do that. And it was during my MBA classes when I met my co-founder, Bill Diffendiffer. Bill is a serial entrepreneur. He's double my age. He comes from a transport industry. He's a trained corporate finance lawyer. He knew how to run companies and how to scale them. And at the time, his wife was relapsing with ovarian cancer. We had clicked very well in the classroom and he said, hey, Xenia, my wife is relapsing with ovarian cancer. What do you think we should do? And at the time, the product that we are working on today, I had a presentation from my parents. I had worked on the product myself as well when I was in their laboratory. And I had this presentation that I actually showed to Bill and his wife, actually at Panera on Lane Avenue. And it was just a research presentation that my mother did often. And I said, hey, this is a research. And Bill and his wife, they said, can we try the product? And I had this material on hand. And here was Bill. I had this presentation. I had this drug. And we said, the only question that we have to ask is, does it work? And that just simple question at the time, does it work, really led to the inception of Rehave. And we are almost four years into it, $4 million, and I'm still trying to figure out, does it work? What even made you think in the beginning that it could work? It's all the laboratory experiments that my parents had done for 15 years. Repeatedly, it kept showing promising results. We have a lot of animal data. And because it is a plant-based medicine or it is naturally derived drug, what we have is prior human use. So the base plant actually has a lot of human use, which is very well documented. There is safety of the plant. We have a unique seed line and cultivar of the plant that we have some protection around. Prior human use, a lot of animal data from our laboratory work really convinced us that we have to find out if it works in humans. And that's generally the pathway. The FDA provides a great rigorous pathway to figure out if a drug works in a human setting. And as you're going through your fellowship, are you focused on one particular area as you're going through this and continuing to build and get better and better and better at what's led you to where you are today? Or is it all different areas of cancer? Primarily, my research mostly has focused on really understanding the nuts and the bolts of cancer. And yes, I have focused on certain types of cancers just because the laboratory focused on it, but I always really focused on what really fundamentally changes a normal cell into a cancerous cell. It's really fundamental grassroots, like what are the functions, what are the changes that happen that really converts a normal cell into cancer cells, which for a lot of cancers is actually quite similar. Some drivers are different in certain types, but primarily a lot of those early changes are quite similar. When you talk about the fact that there's just so many different ways to approach all the different ways that cancer comes about, you know, like when you go to solve that problem and you try to find one solution like you're doing now, what makes this different than a more pharmaceutical-based drug? Yeah, very good question. A lot of pharmaceutical drugs that are currently being used to treat cancer are synthetic 
or they are toxic agents. And some of them are very highly targeted towards a certain mutation or a certain driver in cancer, which is great for short term. However, cancer is a very smart disease, as I said. You know, it mutates, it has resistance to drugs, and it can find so many different pathways to escape and continue to grow. So having a single agent or a very highly targeted drug, the therapeutic resistance from existing treatments is actually a limiting factor. So what we hope to develop with RS324, which is our lead drug acid, what I call it a polymolecular because it's have multiple targets and multiple compounds to block the cancer by blocking multiple cancer pathways right from the get-go. So what I like to call it is actually nature's combination therapy. So you have a lot of different ingredients in this single drug that allows the cancers to be stopped from multiple pathways from the get-go. So there is this broad spectrum approach as well as there is a narrow approach within the drug. And I think that kind of approach is necessary as we go into developing more safe, more tolerable, and long-term efficacy of cancer drugs. I love the natural elements of it. I mean, I'm probably the most like caveman hard-headed when it comes to science and health in the body. I mean, I know just from my own personal health journey and things like that, you know, what works and what doesn't work. But I've always been a huge advocate for the closer that you can get to something natural that comes out of the earth without the processing, without manipulating it, just makes sense to me that that's going to be the ticket to the greater things in our life. And so this natural element of it just feels very right. And I almost wonder if you think, you know, we'll look back in 15, 20 years and say, we were literally poisoning ourselves. I mean, we're doing everything we possibly can and it's all a great intention, but poisoning ourselves to stop something. And there's this greater solution in play we were ignorant to at the time. Sure. So almost 40% of cancer drugs that we use in clinic actually have some sort of uh, inspiration from nature, whether, you know, they were, you know, some part of the drug came from nature, some similarities, how nature has so many different solutions to the problems. So a lot of research that we did in cancer field actually had a lot of inspiration from nature. So, but what happened over time was we could not keep the formulations natural for many reasons. For example, a classic drug that is currently used to treat a lot of cancers in clinic today is Taxol. Taxol came from Pacific Hue tree. It's a huge tree and the bark of the tree actually had the active ingredient. So almost 40, 50 years ago, when the researchers were discovering that, oh my God, there is an active ingredient in this bark that can actually kill cancer cells. And they started, you know, extracting it from the Pacific yew tree bark. And that extraction was just laborious, couldn't scale it up. And the tree actually dies when you take the bark of the tree. So from an ecological point of view, that was just a huge burden that was just not sustainable. And to agriculturally grow plants to the standards that FDA requires you to have consistency, reproducibility and scalability, was actually a huge challenge for developing truly natural formulations as drugs. So if you think about it, you know, yes, we had great inspirations, but somehow they had to be converted into this semi-synthetic or synthetic formulations that were scalable, reproducible for drug development purposes. That doesn't mean that they should not exist. So what we've taken is a very different approach. We are really, for the first time, combining the advancements in the agriculture space, all the advancements, the cutting-edge technology that is being deployed to grow food 
we are taking it to medicinal plants and combining it with drug development. When I talk to my agriculture experts, they say, hey, Zinia, if you came to us five years ago, I don't think we could have helped you. But it is the time is now when they ask you, you know, why is the time for your technology? It's because it's the combination of agriculture advancements and what we know about drug development process. I think that is what is going to make difference in Haver's journey and the people who have tried to develop it in the past. So yeah, there are so many diseases, not just cancer, I always say about major diseases that can have drugs from botanical origin that can be developed. And what we know that our drug is much more safer, much more tolerable and long-term efficacy of the drug because we try to target multiple cancer pathways right from the get-go, not try to figure it out as the patient is developing resistance to the drug that they are taking. All the great work that's being done, I think that's extraordinary, but it is going to be that multidisciplinary approach that we will have to take as we try to manage the disease. I'm sure this is a question that I would assume you get a lot as you talk about these different advancements that have come out. It's like, how in the world does somebody walk up to a bark and just start realizing, you know, or walk up to a plant? It makes me want to walk outside and I'm just going to start eating random things. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess we'll figure out what happened, you know? So how does that happen? I think this is where the curiosity of a researcher comes in. And there's always one serendipitous experience, like in my parents' case, they are not plant researchers. They are hardcore molecular biologists. You know, their training is in synthetic drugs. But one summer internship, a student from India walks into their lab wanting to test this plant material in the cancer models that they had established over time. And that summer, one experiment that when they put this plant material onto the cancer cells as well as normal cells. It selectively killed cancer cells and left the normal cells alone was a discovery that really took that 15 years of their life. So as researchers, you know, that curiosity, that spark that somebody talked about or historical uses sometimes in plant research field is also a great starting point that somehow, you know, people were using it for something, did not know exactly why. But as researchers, we are really good at figuring out the pathways, how does it work, you know, in all of those situations. So there's always some sort of an inspiration for us to do that next experiment. So it's almost this colliding of worlds from all the different sciences coming together to create. Uh, yeah, no, my journey with Reheva is full of those experiences. Me meeting my co-founder was, again, a very fortunate situation. Never thought I would. And starting a company was something that I never thought I would do, but never say never. And so you're in that Panera. And yes. where do you go from there? I mean, the idea is great and we have it on paper and then putting it into actual real life scenario is much more difficult. So how do things evolve? Yeah. So I actually, as I told you that I have this consulting position that I was very excited about starting. And when Bill and I sat down and we really thought about the opportunity that this could really provide, I said, OK, I'm not really ready to give up my job yet, which I've not really started. So I wrote to Deloitte. I said, OK, you know, I want to defer my starting date for six months, you know, and they were very generous, like, OK, yeah, go figure it out what you want to do and we'll be here for you. And what I told Bill was that we will need to raise some amount of money so that we we can really figure out if there is an opportunity here. We needed regulatory help. We needed some other support as well to really figure out that there was something here. And that's when we really did our friends and family round. And when I say friends and family, it's not just 
name friends and family. These are truly friends and family, actually, that I have taken money from. And I feel huge responsibility to use the funds that I got from friends and family and how responsibly I have to use their funds. Because I know these people, I look in the eye. Um, so no corner offices, no fancy lunch and dinners for us, but really putting that money to use. And at the end of that six months, so we raised our first friends and family round, which was $700,000 at the time. And we got the regulatory help that we needed to really figure out, is there a pathway that we could develop what my parents have as a research, you know, for the last 15 years, developing as a botanical drug with the FDA to prove whether a drug works or not. And this was a question when Bill and I sat in that Panera, does it work? And this was the ultimate approval seal, if you will, that we would get ultimately at the end of that process. So we did our friends and family round, followed by a seed round that we did that allowed us to really improve the product. Because when we filed with the FDA, you have to file something called this investigational new drug, IND for short. What that means is, yes, we've looked at how you make your drug. You have a prior human use data. Go put it in patients and tell us that this is safe and tolerable and the dosage that you figured out that you're going to do your subsequent trials in. So FDA allowed us to do that. So they give you 30 calendar days to tell you yes and no. So there's some question and answer there. You answer those questions and they tell you yes or no. So we get an allowance from the FDA to go do our phase one clinical trials. But we also knew that the formulation that we had was not the best formulation. We needed a lot of pills to be administered in the patients. There were some rough edges. We really needed to smoothen that out. So we spent the two COVID years improving the product. So we invested in the process, further securing intellectual property, really understanding better product, basically. How do we do that? And then we filed again with the FDA in September of last year that here... This was a formulation that we started, came to you in 2018. This is a new formulation. It's better improved, allow us to put it in patients now. So we documented all of that, gave it to the FDA, and 30 days later, they say, go do your phase one. So we started our phase one clinical trials at University Hospitals Cleveland, and we've already dosed and enrolled our first patient. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. And so there's this big delight job sitting on the sidelines, and you've completely walked away from it at this point. You're going two years of just kind of spinning the wheels and just really clinging to the long-term vision. Like talk about the patience that required and how you've been able to make it, you and your team through this time period. I have to definitely thank my husband for supporting. I have not really taken a salary for the last four years that I've been with the company. And I think that that's not just my commitment. It's what I wanted to do. It's the passion that I wanted to really figure out. Does it really work? Still going back to that question. And I think being in Columbus has been really actually helpful because the relationships that I had, the partnerships, and anybody and everybody that I talked to was very willing to help. So having that community in your literally, not necessarily backyard, but just alongside to, you know, talk to your friends who are in a similar space. And that really allowed me to really see if there is something here. I often joke, one of my early friends from MBA actually came to work with us for the first six, nine months. We didn't pay them anything. Obviously, they got some equity, but they gave their time. And in return, maybe they got to put it on their resume. And it was a very collaborative process, but they all had to make money. So they had to move on to jobs, hopefully bigger or whatever was necessary at the time. 
But we started with a four-people office in Short North. And, you know, we raised our friends and family around. We started working on it. We got that IND, which is a huge milestone in a biotech space. And a few of my friends left because they needed to make money and we could not afford to pay them on a regular basis, mostly in our world. And in early days, we work with a lot of contractors and consultants. And it's not uncommon to have a virtual model. We really bootstrapped everything. We had the world's leading researchers, regulatory people, but not really as full-time employees. We were getting all the help we needed when it was necessary. So we started with this four-person office. With every successful round of funding, my office size actually shrunk. So from four people, I went down to two. And now I'm in a one-person office when my company is in a phase one clinical trial. But that really tells you that you don't need big offices. You don't need fancy office art to be successful. And I sometimes joke that it doesn't feel like succeeding when my office size is shrinking. But as my co-founder has always taught me, and I think he's been a huge mentor. He's seen everything. And he tells me, you have to figure out what's the one most important thing that you have to get done today. And you do that. You can't do 10 things every day, but what's the most important thing? You identify that and you do that. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. It grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. And so we have our first human under trial. Mm -hmm. And maybe take me through that process too. Like if I'm an individual that's been diagnosed with cancer and I have multiple options in front of me and there's an experimental one, I mean, that's got to be a difficult choice for that individual, but also difficult for you to convince them that you're the pathway to go. Absolutely. When we got into clinical trials and really handing everything to our clinical site, that's when I really said things are literally out of my control now. Because our supervisors, our principal investigators, our clinicians are going to be my ambassadors to these patients. Clinical trials or investigational new drugs are, I'm not saying the second option, but most patients have the standard of care option that they can take. If they choose not to, then clinical trials are an option to them. That's one way of looking at it. Secondly, sometimes patients have unfortunately tried everything that was available to them. There is no other drug that their clinician could offer to them, but then there are investigational drugs that are being tried. So patients can choose to be part of a clinical trial after they've tried a lot of different things. For a Typical phase one clinical trial, the eligibility criteria are actually quite stringent for any clinical trials for that matter. And I think that's what makes clinical trials really difficult to enroll patients is because your eligibility criteria or exclusion criteria are very stringent. You cannot have just all comers, you know, and if your trial says, oh, it's for lung cancer, not all lung cancer patients can be part of that trial. So there is a very stringent lung cancer criteria that we have to fulfill that, okay, you should have tried 
XYZ. You should be this kind of a patient. It is very narrowly defined. So that's why it's very difficult to actually enroll patients in clinical trials. That's why it takes a really long time to really recruit patients for a trial because it's not as simple as a choice that, oh, I just want to be part of a clinical trial. No, you really have to meet that criteria. And then even if you met the criteria, then you have to go through all the testings. And if all your parameters are within what's defined, then only you become part of the trial. So where do you go from here? I mean, knowing all that, what is the next major milestone for you and the company? Absolutely. So the next big milestone, obviously, is to continue recruiting patients for the trial. So we have to complete this phase one clinical trial to understand, is this drug safe? How is it being tolerated? And what is that optimal dose level that we will use for the subsequent or future trials? The next step for Reheva is we are going to be fundraising for our future trials. We have to grow the company. As I said, that we are a virtual company. The executive team is very small. We rely on a lot of contractors and consultants, but the executive team has to grow within now. So hiring is going to be an important milestone for us. Funding and really thinking about what is the next trial that we would have to do again to answer that question, does it work? So there's a lot of great work ahead of us. Drug development is a long journey and something that requires a lot of patience, a lot of money and a lot of brilliant minds to figure it out. How many humans do you typically have to go through during that phase one trial? Each trial can be different, but our trial needs six patients and it's a 28 day trial. So once the patients have been screened, they have been deemed eligible for the trial. They go through all their blood work, all the scanning that we have to go through. And then the patients are dosed. They do a 28-day trial. And at the end of the trial, all the data is recorded. And then we have to report to the FDA, what did we find from these six patients? And each trial is actually different. So some trials could be a little bit longer, shorter, or number of patients can be different. It really depends what you're trying to investigate. So it's a rather quick turnaround, at least for this phase of it. Yes. But then as you continue to push forward, you won't know what the additional phases look like until those come to fruition. Yes. So we have some really good ideas of what we would like to investigate in the upcoming trials. For example, we really want to learn, does our drug improve the overall survival of the patients? One important factor are the limitations of current therapies, as unfortunately, a lot of us are touched by some immediate family member or somebody in our circles by cancer. So we know that the quality of life factor is huge. A lot of patients suffer from that. So we truly believe in developing a drug that it should not just have you know, side effects. Having side effects and short remission period should not be an inevitable part of treatment. So we are trying to make sure that the quality of life of patients, especially if we talk about disease management, you know, this is a long-term management of the disease. So you want to always have a good quality of life for these patients. So improved quality of life, overall better survival. And if we are able to combine it with some standard of care drugs, which patients are currently taking and ultimately improve the overall experience with a standard of care. Those are some of the ideas that we have about the trials that we are going to be planning in future. You might not have the answer to this, but I'm just curious as we're talking through this, how many organizations and companies and individuals go through this process over the years, only they come to the end and realize that it's not going to work and you've spent 10, yeah. 15, 20 years on this journey. I mean, it Tremendous amount. In fact, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies or small biotechs fail at different stages. You know, there is this funnel that all scientists and researchers in life sciences know about. You know, it's a funnel. There's hundreds and thousands of compounds that are being screened right now for different 
therapies, cancer in this case, it funnels down to hundreds in preclinical stage at before clinical. Then it further funnels down that not FDA thinks that all should be developed as drugs. So you may not get that IND allowance from the FDA for different reasons. Then only, you know, tens will probably make it to phase one. And then even a smaller number will make it to phase two clinical trials. So it is a very expensive endeavor, but hey, that's how drugs are developed. And so as we look to wrap up, any final questions for listeners that might be out there, whether they're following the sciences field or whether they are entrepreneurial in spirit that you would look back on your journey so far and give them any tips? Yes. Again, I'm going to repeat myself here, but don't be afraid of failure. Failure is the new success, as I say. Failures are just one way of learning, actually. That's how I've taken it. And you learn from your experiences. As I say that I may not be the most connected person, but I am not shy from asking for help. I have literally called my friends and it's like, hey, can you look at this and ask for help? And I think most of the time the answer will be yes. If they don't know, they will connect. And I think we all are in that position. And I like to return that as well. You know, if somebody asks me for help, if I can connect them or if I can help, I'll try to point them in the direction because especially in drug development, it's very expensive to, you know, just seek professional help. So if somebody can really help you narrow down your choices, that's even very helpful. And the final question we always wrap up with is the theme on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Would be curious to hear what you think of and hear the phrase and how it applies to your life and career. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. I think theme of my life has been living uncomfortably, moving so many countries, you know, learning different languages. English is my fourth language. And I had to learn so many different things, make new friends. And I think living uncomfortably becomes a part of you, actually. And I say that I live from hour to hour. I just look at short term right now. What do I need to do and get it done and then move on to the next thing? But uh, again, when I came to Columbus, I did not know how to drive because I lived in metropolitan cities. I never knew how winter can be harsh. I skipped my car. I slipped on ice, but I think I figured it out in the end. I'm just glad you didn't buy a boat before you landed. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, doctor. And we're excited to continue to watch the future of the company and see how things evolve. Thank you very much for having me. 